0: An opinion piece by Dr. Peter Brindley in the British Medical Journal, published at the height of the pandemic, begins with this story. One of my adult sons asked me if I wanted to try magic mushrooms for my 50th birthday. After I spat out my tea, I suggested he just take me out for a nice lunch. His pitch went something like this. (laughs) If a drug could reconnect you with a sense of awe, empathy, childlike openness, and connectivity, would you take it? It can increase creativity, silence the ego, and allow you to better give and receive love. Dr. Brindley continues, I haven't yet tuned in or turned on, but my quest to know more has been quite the trip. When hair played off and on Broadway, the U.S. was in the throes of a countercultural revolution. Young people with long hair and lots of others were protesting the draft and the war in Vietnam. There was outrage at the assassinations of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Bobby Kennedy. That outrage ignited American cities for months and years to come. What goes up must come down. For three days in August 1969, some 400,000 people converged on Max Yasger's Dairy Farm in Bethel, New York, for what was billed as an Aquarian Exposition. Three days of peace and music. Woodstock delivered on the music, and on mud, and on free love, and on drugs.
1: Uh, to get back to the uh, the warning that I've received, you may take it with how many, however many grains of salt you wish. That the brown acid that is circulating around us is not specifically too good. Uh, it's suggested that you do stay away from that. Of course, it's your own trip, so be my guest. But uh, please be advised that there is a warning on that one. Okay.
0: At the dawn of the 1970s, illicit drug use was talked about openly. Sexual mores were being challenged and youth scolded their elders to give peace a chance. And as the anti-war protests continued, four students were killed at Kent State, shot dead by the Ohio National Guard. A year after Woodstock, President Nixon declared a war on drugs.
2: America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse.
0: And with those words, federal research into the therapeutic uses of psychedelics began to grind to a halt. But that's not the end of the story. On today's program, a new day for psychedelic research.
2: I think what psychedelics do is unlock the door to many different states of consciousness.
0: Bill Richards has been studying psychedelics for 60 years now. He says they work differently than other medications.
2: And that's a whole new concept in psychiatry, that it's the memory of an experience that's therapeutic that you carry with you. You don't have to keep keep taking it every day to have the effect, but you experience something so profound that it changes your whole concept of who you are, who other people are, what the nature of reality is. You feel at home in the universe.
0: A conversation with doctors Bill Richards and Ira Biok coming up. Stay with us. This is the Hear Me Now podcast that comes to you from the Providence Institute for Human Caring. I'm Sean Collins. I'm glad you're with us. Dr. Bill Richards is a psychologist in the psychiatry department of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, Bayview Medical Center, a consultant trainer at sites of psychedelic research internationally, and a teacher in the program of psychedelic therapy and research at the California Institute of Integral Studies. He also has a private clinical practice in Baltimore. Dr. Ira Bayak is a leading palliative care physician, an author, public advocate for improving care for people at all ages and all stages of life. Dr. Bayak is Professor Emeritus of Medicine and Community and of Family Medicine at the Geisel School of Medicine at Dartmouth. And he's the founder of the Providence Institute for Human Caring. And he's a Senior Vice President for Strategic Innovation at Providence. Drs. Byak and Richards, welcome. I'm so glad you're with me for today's conversation.
1: Thanks. It's good to be here.
0: Dr. Richards, let's begin with you. Tell me how it is that your research into psychedelics started up again.
2: I was at the uh, Maryland Psychiatric Research Center in Baltimore. Uh, We had two federal grants by the National Institutes of Mental Health. Uh, for researching the use of alcohol, of LSD and treatment of alcoholism and uh, depressed uh, hospitalized patients. Um, we had a growing staff. I can remember us uh, sitting around a big, heavy table thinking about how we were going to train the hordes of providers that would be needed in the, the next few years. Uh, We were in a brand new four-story facility, uh, the Maryland Psychiatric Research Center built by the state of Maryland with uh, psilocybin, psychedelic treatment suites, with kitchens and bathrooms, uh, a library, an auditorium, and room for animal research, sensory isolation chambers, everything you could wish for. And um, then all of a sudden, uh, Timothy Leary was declared the most dangerous man in America. And um, funding for support uh, dried up. And uh, the staff got smaller and smaller. And um, finally, if we arrive in 1977, I am uh, the last surviving researcher uh, emptying out my office with my two little boys, age three and five, uh, putting my things in the car, and uh, talk about death rebirth. And then there were 22 years of uh, dormancy in the United States, except for a few uh, studies with. uh, Rick Strassman and with DMT in the early 1990s, and then of course, uh, Roland Griffiths and I had the good fortune of restarting research in 1999 at Johns Hopkins, where, well, 23 years later, we're going strong. Hmm. So that's my death rebirth story, you know
0: and what have you learned in those 30 years i mean what what do we know about the mechanism of action for psilocybin
2: well i i'm not a, uh, a neurologist and if you ask a neurologist we would talk about uh, uh that these psychedelics seem to turn down the default mode network of our brains that seems to uh be correlated with the functioning of everyday awareness and open up communication between other parts of the brain that usually don't talk to one another. Uh, And that's all well and good, but frankly the mystery of the correlation between brain activity and consciousness is still as unsolved as ever. We haven't solved the mind-body problem And um, it would be mighty challenging to, in the language of neuropsychology, to explain what's going on in our heads this very minute.
0: Dr. Bayak, what's your interest in these substances as, as medicine?
1: Sean, my interest in psychedelics well precedes my study of medicine or becoming a doctor, um um, and and by the way, I, I am so thrilled to be talking to Bill Richards. Dr. Richards,,, uh, um, you may know that I consider you a national treasure. <laughs> uh, you you really are somebody who has uh, uh, been anchored in this field and has allowed uh, the legitimate research into psychedelics to kind of be connected from that early mid-century, mid-21st century century, uh, research that's so foundational to what we are doing today. Um, What I think um, is often not known about Dr. Bill Richards is that um, he's not just a clinical psychologist, a research psychologist, but um, back in December of 1963, before encountering psilocybin himself for the first time, was a graduate student in theology and psychiatry. And for me, one of the real contributions that uh, uh, Bill Richards has made over the years has to keep us tacking back to the um, mystical experience, the, the phenomenology of of the mystical experience, which seems to have correlates to the therapeutic effects of psychedelics, that's what I hope we can, frankly, explore uh, in our time together. I, I, you know, I've always wanted to ask Bill what what you would have been or what what your career might have looked like had uh, um, had we been able to ask you on December 3rd, 1963, what your career was likely to be, rather than uh, the day or the week after.
2: (laughs) Well, thank you, Ira. Um, Yeah, there was a time uh, when religion and uh, medicine were much more interwoven and interrelated than they've been recently. And with the psychedelics, we may recapture that. They're both integral to healing. There are even different languages sometimes uh, about healing. Yeah, back when uh, I was a theological student, uh, just very briefly tell the story, Um, I just heard that there was an interesting experiment going on in the Uh, NERFIN clinic, the psychiatric clinic around the corner from where I was living, and they were looking for student volunteers to test some new drug that was supposed to uh, elicit uh, memories from early childhood. And so uh, I thought that sounds interesting. And at this point, I had not heard the word psychedelic or the word psilocybin. Uh, but I was led to a little basement room with a little cot and a end table and a narrow window looking out over the hospital garbage cans and given an injection of this drug called psilocybin and left alone. <laughs> and um, I think what saved me was that I uh, drew on my Methodist piety that Somehow God would be with me if any wisely insights about my Oedipal complex <laughs> surfaced. And um, to my total amazement, this profound transcendental state of consciousness opened up that I didn't even know was a possibility. And uh, in many ways, I've never been the
1: same since. Do you have a sense of what you would have been researching had that experience not happened? What would have your, you know, uh, career looked like?
2: Hard to know. Uh, in, In my own mind, I felt kind of called to the ministry and then called through the ministry to research in psychology of religion. And through that into research in clinical psychology and other states of consciousness. And who knows what I'll be when I grow up. Uh Uh, We're all pulling for you. I might still be a musician, actually.
1: Dr.
0: Richards, uh, you said that your life in some way has never been the same. And that's the sort of thing that people say who've had an experience that sort of profoundly changes or alters their perception of the world or their place in the world or the way things are connected in the world. Um, and I'm wondering, is, is that what they do? Do they open up that awareness of connection or that we might normally be blunted to?
2: I think what psychedelics do is unlock the door to many different states of consciousness. There's no such thing as the psychedelic experience. But there are perceptual changes. There are um, psychological dynamics to sort out from one's life history. Uh, There are visionary archetypal (laughs) visions of gods and goddesses in ancient civilizations and precious gemstones and that whole rich language that Carl Jung talked about in mythology and so on. And then there's this state we call mystical consciousness, which is characterized by unity, uh, transcendence of time and space, uh, uh, immersion in what in religious language we call eternity, or in mathematical language, infinity. And uh, I can say for myself, I grew up in northern Michigan. with a profound experience appreciation for nature. I grew up in a Methodist church that valued conversion experiences. So there was a sense of like uh, the closeness to the sacred dimension and honoring of it. Um, I said my prayers every night as a child, you know? Um, But nothing like this depth or intensity of experience which is really uh, the mystical uh We have words for it in all the great uh, world religions. We call it the beatific vision in Christianity, but in Hinduism it's the Atman Brahman unity. You know, it's the the drop of water of the individual self merging with the ocean of the divine Brahman. You know. Um, it's out beyond time. It includes intuitive knowledge that's very reliably reported by different people in different cultures. Mm-hmm. And that's what seems to be publicly therapeutic in terms of the psychotherapeutic use of these substances.
0: And those therapeutic benefits extend well beyond the period of time that the Substances in your bloodstream. Yeah. I mean, there's it, it seems to change something that persists after the administration of the of the medication. And
2: that's a whole new concept in psychiatry that it's the memory of an experience that's therapeutic that you carry with you. It's not a drug effect that you you don't have to keep, keep taking it every day to have the effect but you experience something so profound that it changes your whole concept of who you are, who other people are, what the nature of reality is. You feel at home in the universe for a few blessed moments.
1: I don't know why it took psychiatry so long to learn this. You know, uh, we have other experiences that do that. Um, people survive you know falls that should have killed them but they but they end up surviving and walking away or or after a long period of time you know reestablishing their their health um, uh, we have astronauts that have been uh, on spacewalks and come back to earth saying my life will never be the same they they've learned something experiential that has shifted their their, framework their their worldview in profound ways. Um, and I think for some of us, falling in love has done that, right? You fall in love and all suddenly, who you are is experienced as different. The world looks different. It feels different in some ways. I think for me, that that's how I understand. The psychedelic experiences, or at least the, the the types that Dr. Richards was just talking about of psychedelic experiences has that sort of mystical um, uh, valence to it. That's, that's That sense that you're out of time, that you're, you know, existing in a different relationship to all that was, is, and will be.
2: Yeah. And how do you know it's not a big delusion? You know, it's just like, how do you know you love your wife and your kids? You know, it's an intuitive judgment that just seems central to your identity. You know, it's very important to uh, stress that these experiences don't only happen with psychedelics. Uh, They happen spontaneously to some people, even good atheists sometimes. You know, in the middle of the night, all of a sudden, consciousness opens up. Uh, uh, they happen sometimes in natural childbirth. They happen in some meditative states, uh, in sensory isolation or sensory overload, as in uh, symphony concerts or rock and sometimes, you know, and so on. Maybe very rarely even in exceptional sexual orgasms, you know. There's another world of experience that opens up. And when that happens, it carries a certain intrinsic value and uh, it feels more real than the state of consciousness we're in right now. And most people who have those experiences choose to trust them. They may be very guarded about who they share them with. Yeah. But they're not as rare as we tend to think.
0: You know, that's true of those other experiences that Ira just enumerated. We we tend not to go around telling people about our, our meditation experience or yeah. our incredible orgasms or any other peak experience. We we tend to guard either guard that or feel that it's not appropriate to be sharing it with people it's curious
2: those experiences are very hard to put into words with all due respect to uh science and language uh, this is the realm of art and music often
0: you know
2: it, it's another language
0: I'm glad you brought up art and music um I was born in 1960 so I am literally a child of the 60s and things like the music from hair, the sort of emergence of pop art and op art and psychedelic art started appearing on posters and um, in head shops downtown when I went to go see movies. And I've always wondered how I don't really want to ask how accurate it is, but how is it that that style of art, that psychedelic art, where Paisley has never seen a, a prouder moment in its life or fractals or whatever, is it somehow tied to experiences that people commonly have or is it, is it fiction in some way? How is, it, how is it that we settled on that type of art as a representation of a psychedelic experience?
2: Uh, frankly, I, I think the most psychedelic art may well be uh, uh, a Tibetan mandala, you know, of circles and squares and circles and squares and circles and squares structure and easily, if you will, in balance with one another. Um, you know, Bach and Brahms are among the most psychedelic musicians I know. Hmm. There's a story I love to tell of uh, being in uh, uh, northern India, uh, graciously invited to the home of Tenzin Shogal and his wife, Rinchen Kacho, the younger brother of the Dalai Lama. And um, I was thinking, what should I ask them about? You know, And I thought, aha, Tibetan music. And I uh, said Tenzin, tell me about Tibetan music. You know, this idea that di- different frequencies of these long horns or cymbals might trigger different states of consciousness and so on. And I remember he paused, looked at me, and said, Bill, the music that moves me most deeply spiritually is Beethoven's Pastoral Symphony. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not underestimate our own
1: traditions. Some somewhat similarly, there is an enduring association between psychedelics and research, even prior to medical research, and uh, the death experience or or relationship to mortality. Uh, am I right in observing that? I guess, and and if so. How do you under understand that association?
2: Well, this is something we really share, Ira. You know, we both care deeply about palliative care and uh, possibly integrating psychedelic therapy uh, into palliative care. Uh, that's what I'm doing at Sunstone Therapies and the Aquilino Cancer Center right now. I've been giving psychedelics, LSD, DPT, psilocybin, for decades to uh, cancer patients or people approaching the end of their lives. And it's incredibly meaningful, sacred work. And often when these people have uh, what we would call mystical or transcendental experiences, we find the most dramatic reductions in depression, anxiety, interpersonal uh, withdrawal. Uh, people start to live until they die, but they often claim loss of a fear of death. It's not necessarily that they're convinced of personal immortality, that my little Bill Richards will live on forever kind of idea, but that there's something in which we all participate that's eternal and uh, there's an ultimate loss of anxiety, a feeling that consciousness is indestructible. And the interesting thing is that that, those people don't get suicidal. There's no urge to speed up the death. Uh, On the contrary, they live every day as fully as they can, most of them. But there's this intuition that uh, they know something deep within themselves about, uh, I guess, eternity, really, a state of mind outside of time and space in which we can participate, that we can tune into that dimension. That happens in meditation sometimes or other, you don't have to die in order to get a glimpse of that, but it's a uh, form of human awareness that's incredibly meaningful, beautiful, and transformative in terms of uh, being able to live more fully.
1: So so here we are, this, this is my own understanding, uh, I, which I hope I can art- articulate so psychedelics as i have come to know them and and think about applying them therapeutically particularly for people with serious life-threatening conditions are not drug therapy like you know antidepressants or anxiolytics the ssris or the benzodiazepines they are experiential therapy with the experience induced by the psychedelic in some way bringing the person into relationship with their own life or said another way in relationship to their mortality. That's right. That that seems to be a, a, often a quality of, of the, of the psychedelic experiences that become therapeutic, that, uh, that have therapeutic effect that people feel somehow that they, they were confronting um, mortality. And yet, instead of getting suicidal, have this sense that they have this enduring connection to all that was, is, and will be. Absolutely. And, and that that is itself anx- anxiolytic, not the drug, but the experience, uh, the phenomenology of that experience. Right.
2: The memory of that experience stays with you, and as you integrate it and apply it in daily life, it um, helps you have more fun, you know, be more alive.
0: (laughs) Ira, you talked about a relational experience, and um, it reminds me of the writings of St. Francis of Assisi, who, who talks about sister death being a visitor. Who's welcomed and um, and almost beckoned to to arrive and and um, to visit someone at the end of their life? That it's a it's a relationship that you welcome, not fear.
1: Yeah, and and Carlos Castaneda's you know crow sitting on his shoulder. Right. So people approach
2: death uh, instead of with fear, anxiety, uh, more with curiosity. You know, I guess it's going to be an interesting experience. Mm. And uh, it's not only coming to me, it's coming to everyone else, too. You know, so one of the inspiring things to me is the way the cancer patients who have these transcendental experiences often become really the social workers in their family. You know, they get the family together to talk about the difficult things. And it's a little bit like, uh, you know, I love all you people, and each of you is going to have to die sometime, too. So watch me, and I'll show you how to do it well. You know? How to live as fully as you can each day that you're given. You know?
1: I want to use our time together, Bill, to ask some questions that that I often find myself wondering I wonder what Bill Richards thinks about this. I'll go anywhere with you. On the one hand, we have this gratifying um, reemergence of therapies with psychedelic, psychedelic assisted therapies for all sorts of um, problems, particularly in in my uh, realm of interest, uh, persistent anxiety, depression, Um, demoralization syndrome for people who are seriously ill and for which our our current medications haven't been particularly successful or are partially successful and bring side effects and all sorts of downsides. On the other hand, we have this reemergence of um, non-medical use of uh, psychedelics and And a number of um, jurisdictions which have decriminalized, and some have, uh, are have or are poised to fully legalize psilocybin as one psychedelic that that may well become quite quite widely available again. And some of us, I'll 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 say myself, as much as I want to see psychedelics reemerge as a therapeutic modality, I worry about the the non-prescribed, non-screened, and supervised patients and their experiences. But uh, within palliative care, first of all, I I am actually not aware of any ongoing uh, therapies that are housed within a palliative care program. They're all housed within uh, psychology, psychiatry, or now at Aquilina, I guess, oncology but the field of palliative care has yet to actually embrace this. But the current trials, as I understand them, require a diagnosis, a DSM-5 diagnosis of anxiety, depression, or demoralization. And one of the things that I've been saying, and that I wonder what Bill Richards thinks, is, you know, shouldn't dying be enough?
2: Well, that that would only make it relevant to mortal people. No, I I think uh, exploring human consciousness is a human right. To, ex, we, you know, Teilhard de Chardin says we're all uh, spiritual beings having physical experiences or human experiences right now. You know, well, we should be. If that's true, we should be able to wake up to the spiritual dimension of our lives. That's not something government should be controlling. or trying to control. But how we do that needs to be done wisely, safely, responsibly. And the psychedelics are an incredibly powerful tool when they're used right. And if they're going to be used right by people in general, healthy people as well as people we label sick. Um, We've got a huge educational task to do. As you probably know in my book, I use the metaphor of downhill skiing. You know, if you just jump on a pair of skis without any instruction and start downhill, chances are you're going to hurt yourself or someone else. It's just not a smart thing to do but we don't make that illegal. If you crash into a tree, we should just say that was a stupid thing to have done, you know? And so if you're going to go skiing, you get some lessons, you prepare, you start on a small slope, perhaps, you know? And I think it's the same thing with psychedelics. If you choose to use this uh, technology of exploring the mystery that you are, um, you need to go about it carefully and intelligently, and that has two big prongs. One is doing it in a trust-filled relationship where you're uh, safe and respected and there's confidentiality and you can genuinely be yourself and be open whether you go through pleasant things or unpleasant things. Sometimes when consciousness opens up, you have to go through some unresolved grief or guilt. It's not always wonderful. Sometimes there's a suffering that needs to be experienced. But in the big picture, that's positive. It's healing. It's intensive psychotherapy. And then there's also just psychoeducation to to know the principles of navigating in the inner world, if you will, of uh, if there's something frightening, go towards it instead of trying to to run away from it. If you run away from it, you're going to get into panic and paranoia. If you go towards it, you're going to find out uh, what it means. And it becomes an avenue towards uh, personal psychotherapeutic progress you know the monster becomes your alcoholic father in the middle of the night or whatever it is um, you always go towards whatever emerges and you trust the wisdom of your own psyche and choreographing the content of a particular psychedelic session and the other big principle is that you choose to turn off Uh, your intellectual defenses. And there's a tendency for us to say, stop the world. I have to figure out what's going on here. I have to label this um, before I can allow it to happen. And that becomes a uh, defense of the ego. So you choose to dive in and collect experiences that then you can put words on at the end of the day. and the days ahead.
0: okay, Dr. Richards, is your experience that people who have uh, a psychedelic experience have a good memory of what they experienced, or um, is that aided by the, the trusted guides who are at their side?
2: The inner world is so incredibly vast. There's so many different strata of experiencing, if you will. Uh, no matter what the dosage is, no matter what is experienced, I don't think anyone can ever bring back 100%. Okay? Uh, but if you remember percent it can be life transformative. Okay? And the memory that they're it, – it's like um, roller skating through the Louvre. Okay? Uh, you, there's no time to look in detail at every painting, but you know you were in an incredibly beautiful place. And you probably zeroed in a, on a half dozen paintings that you really remember. And that's what a psychedelic experience often is like.
1: Just to stay with that for a moment, though, I, I think the memory is more emotional than, than cognitive uh, you know, for me at least, I, I can't remember all the thoughts, um, but I, I can remember how I felt, feel, or felt, and th- this, that sense of confidence that that all is well. That you know, um, there's this phrase "mothers at home," right? This this sense of being grounded and yeah. and safe.
2: It's also what we mean by the word cognition. You know, in our recent history, cognition kind of means intellectual, verbal uh, language. Uh, There's another kind of knowing, which we call intuition. And the scientific community is wary of that. We tend not to take it too seriously. We kind of devalue it as kind of a woman's punch, you know. But the great spiritual insights always arrive intuitively. It's kind of beholding the reality of God or whatever your word for ultimate reality is. Uh, The the beauty of these states. uh, It's just immediately perceived, recognized. It's not thought about. Uh, You may know Bergson's two sources of morality and religion. And we tend to devalue in the scientific world this uh, immediate knowing. It's like, how do you know you love your wife? You know, you just know, you know. What makes it scientifically respectable is when you find that very different people different uh, educational levels, different professions, different races, different cultures, when they all report essentially the same thing, then you can say uh, this is not just weird emotionality. They're really tuning into something that's at the core of each of our minds. And the ultimate insight is always the, the ultimate core of this eternal world is love not as a soupy emotion of some kind but as a very intelligent creative energy dante's divine comedy it is love that moves the stars there is something like that
1: exactly the, the the aesthetic intelligence is experienced as love that the, the primal aesthetic intelligence is love i, I recognize that we're living through a hopeful period uh, of time in the, you know, um, history of psychedelics and their use therapeutically. You're certainly evidence of that in the, the work that you're doing at the center at Johns Hopkins and at the Aquilina Cancer Center. I wonder though, are there things that worry you? What what keeps you up at night, if anything, as you think about where we are now in the arc of the this history of psychedelics?
2: Well, I try not to st- let it keep me up at night. Uh, we just each do our part and hope for the best, you know. But I do often have the thought that these psychedelics aren't new, you know. They've been around since at least 500 BC, you know. And maybe since the dawn of man, okay? And they've, like mushrooms, they arise in cultures and they get suppressed. And they arise and they get suppressed. And right now, in the early 21st century, they're arising in our culture. Now, are we evolved enough, intelligent enough, respectful and tactful enough to really integrate them safely into our society. I'd like to think we are. But we've got a huge educational job to do, both of uh, providers and the population as a whole. Because there are many people who still are under the influence of the Uh, propaganda of the 1960s that psychedelics are going to make you jump off skyscrapers and have deformed babies, and that they're addictive drugs. Uh, They're not, you know? They need to be used incredibly wisely and respectfully, but they're very effective, powerful tools that could make for a better world if we're smart enough.
1: Thank you for that. Right. Right. Well, I share that. I share that worry. I hope we're wise enough, and I. I really don't know. I. I worry at times that we're we're not having, having lived through it uh, as a young college student, having psychedelic experiences, quote unquote, illicitly, that were life changing for me, and that helped, you know, point me toward uh, a life of service and and in medicine. Deeply value the experiences, but I. I witnessed. Pretty close at hand, the politicalization, the polarization, the demonization, the the propaganda that you just mentioned, uh, and all of that go away, and the the real um, destructive misconceptions that uh, were resonant so long for so many decades, which is which is why I started to write and speak out, in, in my seniority as a you know palliative care doc. Um, But now I'm both gratified on the one hand to see all the attention and, and I worry that things are moving a little too swiftly outside of the research and careful therapeutic settings. So I, you know, I'm, I'm like you, I, I'm hopeful, but I'm, I'm um, wary of, of what's happening today.
2: You know, I have the privilege of teaching at the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we have this program for t- training people to be psychedelic therapists. And uh, we've probably been about a thousand people, I think, now. And me- mm-hmm. it's how mm-hmm. uh, I mean, these, these aren't young and inexperienced people as a whole. They're uh, psychiatrists and social workers and Alternative medicine people and psychologists and whatever in mid or late career, uh, often full professors, uh, they just want to be uh, poised to be able to legally work with psychedelics if and when they come off schedule one, which could actually happen in a couple years, three years, four years, who knows. The FDA has been very open and reasonable. And incidentally, the FDA has approved a lot of studies with healthy, normal people. It's not just uh, sick people, you know, with diagnoses from DSM. You know, if we keep doing good work and speaking in languages that the medical establishment and the political establishment and the culture as a whole can comprehend maybe we can integrate this into the culture Keith I'm good I'm doing my part
1: you, you always have we we really those of us who think that this is an important therapeutic modality uh, are deeply grateful to you for all the work you've done You're, you've been steadfast in this in this realm of um, human caring.
0: Gentlemen, thank you for taking the time today. It's been an absolutely fascinating conversation, and I'm really grateful for you being
1: here. Uh, I value
2: you both. Your, I hope this program uh, serves to uh, help educate uh, the world out there.
1: Pleasure. Really a pleasure and a privilege to be with you both.
0: Dr. Bill Richards is a psychologist in the psychiatry department of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, Bayview Medical Center. He's also a consultant trainer at sites for psychedelic research internationally. And he teaches in the program of psychedelic therapy and research at the California Institute of Integral Studies. He spoke with us from Baltimore. Dr. Ira Bayak is a leading palliative care physician author and public advocate for improving care for people of all ages and stages of life. Dr. Biak is a professor emeritus of medicine and community and of family medicine at the Geisel School of Medicine at Dartmouth. And he's the founder of the Providence Institute for Human Caring. He spoke with us from Missoula, Montana. The Hear Me Now podcast is a production of the Providence Institute for Human Caring. Follow us on Twitter, where we're human underscore caring. The program is produced by Melody Fawcett, Victoria Johnson, and Scott Acord. We have research help from medical librarians, including Basha Dolaska, elliott Seema Bakhta, and Heather Martin. Our theme music was written by Roger Neal. The Pastoral Symphony was written by Beethoven. The executive producer is Michael Drummond. I'm Sean Collins. Thanks so much for listening. Be well.